This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's O Ship. This week, we're really lucky to have two very, very clever people joining us today uh, with some very interesting backgrounds who have been writing a book about hacking bureaucracy. I'll explain a little bit more what that means in a moment, but first, let me give you a little bit of background on our guest today. First up, we've got Marina Nitsa, who is currently a partner at Layer Elef, a crisis response firm for software systems. Marina is also a fellow at New America's New Practice Lab, where she works on improving America's foster care system, and is most recently the chief technology officer of the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs under President Obama, after serving as a senior advisor on technology in the Obama White House and as the first entrepreneur in residence at the U.S. Department of Education. She's also an active board member and advisor for multiple companies. She's joined by her co-author, Nick Sinai, who's a senior advisor at the VC and private equity firm Insight Partners. He's an active board member for multiple companies, and quite notably, Nick served as the U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer at the White House, Obama White House, and prior uh, played a key role in crafting the National Broadband Plan at the FCC. He's also very passionate about helping others be successful, both through his educational roles and most recently by co-authoring a book with Marina that uh, promises to help you get things done no matter what role on any team. So needless to say, I think we're very fortunate to have the two of them, uh, these experienced guests today with us to discuss what lessons they've learned, not just about navigating the complex multi-layered systems and processes of bluntly some of the largest and potentially slowest moving bureaucratic organizations in the world, but actually thriving in it, and by their own words, hacking bureaucracy. And I'm going to leave it to them to really give you the details of that. And here we go with another week of OSHIP. Welcome to OSHIP. How are you? Thanks for having us. So glad you're here today. I'm really looking forward to, to, to digging in. Again, I, I just uh, just gave your book a, a great five-star and justifiably earned review on, on Amazon. And I, I think you're just really touching on a really important subject for a lot of people uh, in America and frankly, across the world. I think a great way to, to get to know the both of you and uh, understand why, why you've ventured on, out on, on writing a book about the subject would be maybe understanding a little bit more about your personal backgrounds that would inspire you to write, write this book. Marina, maybe start with you. I'd, I'd love to hear what inspired you to go down this path. Absolutely. So I joined the federal government in America 10 years ago. Nick was actually my first boss. Uh, through something awesome. called the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program. And I was really convinced at the time that government was irreparably broken. You couldn't fix it. You couldn't do anything to make it better. And I was there to prove that I was right. However, I was really, really wrong. Uh, and I learned from people like Nick and, and a lot of other colleagues that there were actually ways you could make incredible change and impact at scale if you learned how the bureaucracy actually worked. Um, and this really culminated for me in a, in a meeting. I got called in with President Obama in a cabinet meeting to answer to him why I was making such slow progress at the VA, which was a pretty terrifying uh, meeting to get yeah. called into. But even in that moment, I realized like, oh my gosh, the leader of the free world himself can't even get through IT approval paperwork. You actually have to get through the IT approval paperwork. Uh, and so that really inspired us to kind of put together this book that said, hey, there's possible to make change 
but there's certain ways to go about it. So we really want to share a lot of stories in that vein. Amazing. How about you, Nick? I had the great opportunity and privilege to serve four years in the Obama White House. Been teaching at the Kennedy School ever since. And I also work in venture capital. And so I, I see people who are tremendously successful organizations, public and private. And, uh, and so we just thought we, we wanted to share world and we're really excited to do so. I have to ask, uh, Marina, what, what was it like uh, working for the Obama administration? Uh, I learned a lot. I mean, there were a lot of people that were really good at getting things done and they understood how you had to map out your stakeholders, what it took to really make change with, with people across the aisle. Um, and also the scale is tremendous, right? If you're working in the federal government, I now work with you know a lot of Fortune 10, 500 companies in my IT crisis consulting. I work with state foster care agencies, but nothing is the scale of like working at the VA. There I had uh, 350,000 full-time employees as colleagues. Wow. Um, and we had a, a multi, multi-billion dollar IT budget alone. So the scale was really tremendous. I feel like, uh, you know, for those of us who love uh, reading the news, and I'm a bit of a, a bit of a news junkie, uh, obviously the, the challenges of the VA were, were, have been very prevalent for, for a long time. I'd love to hear uh, an example of, you know, when you think about taking on some of the kind of these, you know, to quote you guys from 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 your book, you know, you've taken on some of the world's most challenging bureaucracies. Obviously, the VA would be a, a wonderful example of that. What what is it exactly? Does it mean to win against uh, bureaucracy? Well, maybe I'll tell one story here. So, uh, as you said, VA was always on the front page of the newspaper, never for anything good. Although that's really changed. Yes, I agree. The the Sammies are like uh, the government equivalent of Emmys or Grammys, and the VA has won uh, two of the last three years, which is pretty incredible for amazing customer service. Veteran trust has gone up twenty five percent. So the VA is really it's incredible to look back uh, on the you know last nine years since I started there, and by no means did I accomplish all of it myself. I worked with a lot of amazing people, but um, one story would be. Uh, the VA was on the front page of the New York Times for having a backlog of healthcare application claims. So there were 800,000 pending paper applications from veterans that were trying to get healthcare. And the uh, auditors in, assumed that over 100,000 of them had died waiting for their application to be processed, which is unforgivable and criminal. Yeah. Um, and the VA had an online application at the time, but only eight veterans out of America's estimated 20 million veterans, only eight had ever used it. And so the VA believed that, you know, veterans don't use the internet. Obviously, that's what the data showed. And I just wasn't willing to accept that. And so my- That sounds crazy on a side note. (laughs) sat with real veterans that were really trying to apply for healthcare and revealed that the reason only eight had ever applied online, which was a much more efficient way to, to apply in theory, was that the application and the website was so old that it required you to have an ancient computer and an ancient version of Adobe Reader to actually open it. And so we piloted a very, very simple web form, not machine learning, not advanced technology, a very, very simple web form that got the information that, you know, the VA needed to enroll you, sat and tested it with real veterans, um, got them on video saying it was, that they would use it over anything the VA had to offer, which was sort of a funny quote, uh, and then rolled it out. And 2 million veterans have since used that form on their mobile phone to enroll in VA healthcare, which is pretty true. Tremendous. That's amazing, Nick. Nick, I'd love I'd love to hear. Uh, do you have another example of, of how you feel like you've uh, kind of uh, con- conquered or won against uh, bureaucracy? We started the Presidential Innovation Fellows, and in fact, Marina was the, those fellows who took a chance uh, on program, which paired outside technologists with side change agents. And I think it's really important to kind of marry institutional knowledge. Uh, and more recently, I've, I've, I've helped do this with the U.S. Digital Corps. 
which is an early collateral fellowship for young tech because not only do they come in and do something of real importance, but their stint at the Department of Education then went on to be the chief technology officer of, of the VA. Uh, I will, I'll add at age 28, so we broke just about every rule in the book, uh, but the VA Amazing. is so much better for it. And there's, a, there's you know, now the Presidential Innovation Fellows is, is in law, it was, it was bipartisan legislation. And so it really is a, a, a good example where the alumni have gone on really important things in, in government. Love that. And, and so, uh, you know, I guess, how did you go from a place of saying, uh, these, are, these are challenges we're solving every day to like, I need to write a book about this and to tell everyone else what we learned? I guess we'll start, start with you, Nick. Well, I guess for me, I spend a lot of time, my student at Harvard Kennedy School. And so I seem to be having the same conversations over and over again and, and kind of the same set of tips. And so, you know, part of this was just a, a hack of maybe I could just hand them a copy of the book. But, you know, I also wanted to tell the stories of all of our friends and colleagues, people that we admire. And so it, there, there's so much kind of behind the scenes in any organization, you know, too often people are, you know, on TV and they see the leader of an organization, you know, like a President Obama, who is singular and very impressive dude, by the way. But, you know, there are thousands of people inside the bureaucracy of the White House and, and, and millions of people inside the bureaucracy of the executive branch. And there's some, some real good stories about how to build a team, how to prototype, and how do you actually use bureaucracy against itself? How do you actually get the organization, the rhythms of, a, of an organization? How do you understand those and then use those to not only get your product, get your initiative off the ground, but also make systemic change? And that's that's really what hacking your bureaucracy. Marina, you uh, Nick mentioned a moment ago that uh, one of the key things you guys tried to communicate in the book was uh, basically stories from other other people that you admire and respect um, in in the uh, you know in their experience kind of hacking bureaucracy. Is there some ex- uh, examples you could give outside of your you know outside of some of the ones you specifically mentioned from your own kind of remit of kind of bureaucracy just really bringing that bringing an age, a, a firm or a business just kind of to a to a halt? You know, the worst examples of bureaucracy, obviously, if you know what I mean. I mean, I think, so in the, in the course of writing this book, Nick and I tried to find a place that wasn't a bureaucracy. And uh, this led us to a co-op grocery store in Berkeley, California. And it turns out it also is a bureaucracy that has rules unwritten and written that everybody has to follow and different incentives. And so I think we are all mired in bureaucracy all the time. And I think there's probably no shortage of times that we all feel pretty, pretty stressed out in a bureaucracy. Um, maybe I'll tell one uh, story from my friend, Dr. Lucia Coulter, okay. that was actually, uh, so she's a doctor. She felt like she actually wasn't making enough impact in the world as a doctor, uh, which is crazy. And she wanted to help end lead exposure for children. Uh, and lead paint is delicious. I don't know if your listeners know that, which is why why it's so dangerous, because kids like to eat it. Is and, it really delicious or you being funny? Really delicious. I mean, I have not personally eaten it, but that is that is the requirement <laughs> of why it is, why it is so dangerous. And, uh, but in America and in, uh, Canada and many countries, it's been banned for like over 50 years. So it's not something that people think about. And, uh, but Lucia kept seeing it as a problem in Africa and people just wouldn't engage in the conversation. So she went to the store, bought paint and had it tested for lead. 
cost maybe $100. And look at that. In Malawi, there was lead paint on the shelves everywhere. And in response to that, this the, the presence of data that hadn't existed before, the government there put lead paint regulations in place in a matter of months, which government cannot really move at that speed, and it did. And yet she went to Botswana, and it turns out they don't have lead paint because they import from South Africa that had banned lead paint a long time ago. And so by just going out and surfacing some seemingly basic data, here's lead paint. You didn't think it was there, but here it is. Um, she was able to, and is continuing to change, I mean, many, many countries and the, the lives of potentially millions of children. On a side note, I stunned they sell lead paint anywhere in the world still. And that's, uh, that's kind of amazing that you still, people are still finding that kind of stuff. Uh, and now, on a terrible note, I'm also kind of bizarrely intrigued at what lead paint tastes like. <laughs> so, so thanks, for, thanks for seeing it. that one out in the world. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I'll tell you what I'd love to do. I, I want to I jump into some of the very specific lessons uh, that and, and strategies that, that you have learned and put out in the, in the book. So could you share some of the things that, you know, so maybe some of the favorite strategies or favorite tips that you would give people as they're starting to think about how they can make a change um, within any organization. Uh, maybe start with you, Marina. Yeah, so uh, the book has 56 of them, but I, my favorite is definitely uh, look between the silos. So the larger and the older a bureaucracy is, the more that there are going to be steps or departments or teams that are very siloed, right? We're all familiar with that concept. And they have a lot of defensive antibodies up against change. They may not want you to come in at all. They may not want, and they certainly probably don't want you to make change. But in the handoffs between the silos is really where there's tremendous opportunity to make change because nobody is defending the space in between the silos. And I'll tell you a story around this. So these days I work in foster care and one of my projects is helping states streamline their foster parent application process because it tends to take hundreds of days during which time kids are literally sleeping on office floors or living in institutions when there are available families who just can't get through the paperwork process. And so to look between the silos, what you need to do is start and finish uh, a real process following a real person or a real claim. It's really important that you can't do this conceptually. You can't go through and talk to everybody at a step abstractly about what they're doing. You need to follow a real claim or person or application. So I'm doing this in a particular state and I get to a step where the woman is uh, requesting the applicant's driving record from the DMV. And she pulls out carbon copy paper, which maybe some of your audience is not even old enough to, to remember. <laughs> you press really hard through multiple colors. And then she had, she's like, I have to find a stamp and an envelope. And like the DMV, they live in the 19th century. Why are they making me fill out this carbon copy paper? Yeah. And I did what she was not empowered to do, which was I then went to the DMV and said, hey, can you show me how you're processing this driving record application? And the woman's like, oh, absolutely. I pull up my electronic system, I get the requests in over on the left, and then I respond to them same day. And I was like, well, wait a minute, I saw some carbon copy paper, where does that come in? And she said, oh my God, you were at child welfare. Those people live in the 19th century. Why do they keep sending me this stupid carbon copy paper when they could just email their requests? And I was like, please hold, and ran back across the street. And in an afternoon, was able to remove a step that nobody wanted to do and shave 32 days off an application process. And I have about a million stories like that. Like this tactic keeps working for me again and again in my work. And it's something that anybody can do, no matter what your role is in an organization. If you're new, if you've been there for 20 years, you can follow something from start to finish and find the opportunities between the silos. Why do you, why do you think that some like why why do people keep these really obsolete things in their system like what what gets what makes something get stuck like that that's so clearly insane yeah. I think about this a lot and what comes down to it is that very often nobody owns the end to end process 
at all. So no, it's never anybody's job to see that handoff step. It's never anybody's job to look at the entire process from start to finish and think about how it can have improved customer service or improved timeliness or improved data quality. And that's why it's such a, an amazing ripe area for bureaucracy hacking, because you can often find things that are completely not controversial that nobody wants to do anymore or that have been obsolete for decades, but, but it's never anybody's job to find them. So if you can make it part of your job to find them, you may be really surprised by the impact you can make. Yeah, I'm still stunned by some of the you know orgs that I run with, and they're like, "Can you fax it to us?" I'm like, "I can't email." They're like, "No, no, you have to fax it to us." I'm like, "Really?" <laughs> like, so it's just kind of kind of crazy. And do you think it is, you know, to your point that some of this is about people not not owning some of the steps, but is it is this like organizational design? You know what I mean? Is this like flaws to the org design, and then maybe a to your point, you're talking about the VA having 350,000 employees, which is hard for most of us, including me, to even wrap my head around. You know, I've, I've worked in some multiple tens of thousands of com- people, companies, and I felt that was pretty, pretty huge. I guess it just, you know, it, it must be really hard to not only design an org that big, but also to then change an org that org that big. Yeah, I think a lot of people have a belief that large storied bureaucracies are are designed to, say, deny people benefits. I think a lot of people believe that the government is designed to keep people from getting benefits or to, you know, reduce the spend of taxpayer dollars. But I think the reality is they aren't designed at all. And that's different. And so a a question that we've actually been asked uh, as we've been talking about the book that's been pretty intriguing to me is, how do you prevent becoming a bureaucracy? And I think we have two responses to that. First is everything is a bureaucracy in some sense. And we consider the term to be a bit more neutral as opposed to a four-letter word, which is some people have accused it of being. But if you want to keep it, the bureaucracy from getting in the way of progress, one of the really key things you can do is design your bureaucracy rather than think that if you don't do anything, it will somehow not exist or not get in the way. And really a key there is understanding end-to-end when you have a process, forgetting about the 17 teams in the middle that, that may own different steps. Somebody has to own the process, design the process, have key performance indicators around that process. And that's what I think can really keep a bureaucracy from getting in the way and can even enable a bureaucracy to deliver better, faster outcomes. To your point, you know, a bureaucracy doesn't have to be a 300,000 person you know, organization. There is bureaucracy at every every level of companies. It's, you know, it's and hopefully I'm doing this definition justice, but you know, it's it's the systems, it's the processes, it's the design. And bureaucracy is is designed on some level to slow things down to make sure there's smart decision making happening so people aren't impulsive, but at the same time that can get out of control, like like most things in this world. And so, you know, Nick, uh, turning to you, if if you were to uh, think about, let's say, a hundred person company, which probably reflects uh you know, a, a huge, a huge number of people out there and, and that's really starting to build, you know, I think that's around that size company where you really start more and more systems and processes and tools are starting to come in as people are scaling up their companies. H- how do you, would you recommend on a, on a far more simpler level, like an everyday member of a team, maybe a member of a team of 10 or 15 people where they feel like they struggle to impact change because maybe they're more junior in the role, they're not a key decision maker, how would you coach that person to effect change within their own organization? You know, I'm a big fan of of showing your work and just being transparent. Um, and, and I thought you were going to ask me, like, how should I uh, company? There are some some tips to prevent the the organization from becoming a bureaucracy. So I was I was thinking. 
we could talk about that too. Looking there, that <laughs> so uh, uh, in, in that I was I was thinking about you know how do you do things uh, concurrently rather and sometimes or trap of like hey it's got these different levels of hierarchy. This person's got to clear then this person's got to clear or um, you know can can you actually have a, a transparent concurrent uh, process? And so uh, to give you a couple examples in the White House, we we had ex Google and ex Twitter uh, folks who came in, and so they said hey. You know, even process where you're trying to try and launch policy and regulations and initiatives, you can still think about what a launch calendar looks like, where you have a tight set of folks and that uh, the, the launch calendar is transparent to everyone, rather than kind of this, well, I did my part and I passed it on, but not everybody knows, right? So that was a, a Twitter product launch uh, example. Another one would be from, from Google, this idea of snippets. Snippets is this idea of, of essentially a bullet update on what you're working on and what your blockers are, that kind of thing. It, meetings where, where, where everyone's giving the status update and you spent the whole meeting on the status update, can you put that in written form and share with people meeting, and even take the first five minutes of the meeting for people to, to scan those bullet points so that you're able to have a much more useful meeting? So there's, there's things like that that I think uh, regarding transparency, regarding you know, how you work, that it's important to set that tone at 50 or 100 people because pretty soon, if you're a successful company, 250, 500, 1,000 people, and it's a lot harder to change those, those kinds of things. For an individual, I, I, would, I would say your ideas matter. And, and to the extent that you can show those ideas, uh, so write them down. Write a one-pager. We've talked about this in the book. Uh, you know, show what a very rudimentary product is. Get out of the office and have a single customer or prospect something. Record that as a video or or write down, and just that quote or that video can be super powerful. So it's the you don't need to 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 do the whole thing. Is you know show a small piece of it and show it to your boss, but also show it transparently to your team and and to the company to the extent the culture allows. And I think that can help you build some momentum and and get enthusiasm. Ultimately, making change is about getting people to champion your ideas to provide additional people resources to help you be more successful and you have to show that you're going to make some progress uh, rather than just talk about it so we're a big fan of writing it down we're a big fan of actually uh, demos and showing showing uh, your work and showing what the customer or employee experience uh, would be so that people get excited about that and then they want to move forward uh, rather than kind of arguing about it in the abstract you mentioned culture a couple times there, and and again, I, I've never, I've certainly never worked in the government space, and I've, I've never worked in an organization uh, to the scale that both of you have been discussing. Marina, do do organizations of that of that side do they have do they have I guess everything as culture, but what does culture look like in an org of of that size, and can you kind of hack culture to drive outcomes if if that makes sense? Yeah, there was so much talk when I was at the VA around culture change, and especially as we were creating the U.S. digital service to bring technologists in for their own tours of duty. There was a lot of discussion about this. And the only thing I've ever seen work on that is the delivery is the strategy, which we borrow from the, the U.K., actually. Mm-hmm. You can't change culture, at least not. I've never seen it work with PowerPoints and meetings and like rah, rah. Yeah. 
situations. You have to be, you have to change the metrics. You have to change the performance plans. You have to change the words that you're saying, and then you have to change the, what you're rewarding. And that's what changes culture. People deeply respond to incentives. And this is something that we cover in many ways in the book. I don't mean to sound overly manipulative, but you need to understand each person where they are in the decision-making process. It's This is usually not actually reflected on an org chart or written down. So it's a different sort of investigation you need to do. And then you need to understand what each person is incentivized by and what each person considers risky. Do they want recognition? Do they not want recognition? Do they, you know, what does their performance plan say that they're expected to do? Are you asking them to do something that from their perspective, they could get investigated for long after you're gone, which was something that I encountered a lot. And then how can you change that risk? How can you change the process or the paperwork or the performance plan or the criteria to make the path of least resistance and least risk the path that you want people to take? It's really, it's really interesting. I, I, it, you, you know, a lot of times when people talk about culture, and you point out, yeah, you know, maybe not quite the kind of rah rah, but the concept there is that there's personalities, there's energy, there's an energy, there, you know, these feelings that define like how people interact with each other, and there hits a scale where that's just not possible to extend that, you know, fit different physical locations. Just, just frankly, to scale becomes impossible. I feel like you can have cultures within teams, like a more predict. Pred- uh, the kind of cultures that people normally associate with that, with that kind of that word in a corporate environment, but then the, the, ince- you know, the incentives, which are a little less emotional, those are those are universal, universal truths. And I see how you can apply those at scale. One of the interesting things you you touched on in the book that I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about. You talked a little bit about uh, kind of you know, never letting a, a, a good crisis uh, go to waste. And obviously, I think there's uh, there's a fair share of those, especially when it seems like dealing with government agencies. But um, Rena, I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, what uh, you and Nick meant when you when you referenced that. Yeah. So I think different organizations will respond differently to a crisis. In the case of early VA, we had so many crises that it actually didn't really respond very much. Um, you'd think that that would be a time when you'd, you know, relax the rules and let things happen. But that was not so much the case. However, sometimes, like the healthcare story I, I told earlier, it, it was very highly motivated to work through that backlog and get all those veterans healthcare. And mm-hmm. so we were able to use that crisis to say, hey, is this enough so Marina can run a pilot? Not so Marina can, you know, announce she's going to change overnight, but can I, can I just run a pilot over here? Can I just talk to a few veterans? And that was enough of an opening. Um, and oftentimes in a crisis, you may have a plan. You may have the one pager that Nick talked about and a vision for how it's going to happen, but the timing may just not be right. And if, however, if you're prepared, there's that great quote, right? A chance favors the prepared mind that you don't know when that crisis hits and it has something to do with what you're up to. It may unlock budget, headcount, prioritization, focus, whatever it may be that now it may be the time to unlock it. And so I really, we want to encourage people to be ready so that if a crisis happens and obviously we don't know that it's going to happen or that's not how crises work. Uh, yeah. Then you're you're prepared to be the solver. That's it's. Uh, I think that's great advice. Again, it, crises can be periods of let's call it intense transformation, and so you can ride the wave or you can sit and watch the wave from the side. So I feel like since we're talking about crises, uh, now is uh, as good as any time to ask you about uh, your ship question. And for those of you that have uh, been tuning into ship for the first time today. You know, a huge part of OSHIP was originally born out of this concept that, you know, sometimes things go wrong uh, on your path to success and how people deal with them uh, is really interesting. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of people look at, 
you know, people solving big challenges who've had some success in their careers or, or in their businesses and assume that it, you know, it's a very straightforward path from A to B, but the path to success is, is very rarely a straight line. And so uh, whether there's moments of, of oh, you know, oh ship moments, as we call them, when things kind of go off the rails, some people that shapes who they are as a leader, some people changes how they, how they operate on a day-to-day basis, and some people are just thankful they survived it and makes a bloody funny story in hindsight. So Nick, I'd love to, I'd love to start with you. Is there a, a moment uh, that you can share from, from your career or even for the book, maybe other stories you've seen out there that you think is kind of a, a, great, a great moment of uh, where you've seen it kind of all go off the rails and, and how people have, have handled it? Yeah, there's a there's a couple oh ship moments in the book. Uh, I'll tell them both quickly uh, regarding some of my screw ups in in government. Uh, one, when I first started government at the FCC, I had been working on on uh, this question of energy data and and should consumers be able to get access to their own electric usage data from their utilities. And uh, I, I had been working with folks on uh, the Hill, staffers in Congress. And they had incorporated some of my ideas, legislation. So I was very proud that a congressman had, and senator had released uh, some legislation. And they invited me to testify uh, as an expert witness, which is kind of a big deal uh, if you're a, a staffer in, inside of an organization uh, like the FCC. And especially because I was new to government, too. So I was feeling quite full of myself uh, and quite proud. And then the FCC did not let me testify because I had been going behind the back of the Office of Legislative Affairs. And so it was a good OSHIP moment where I, I realized I, I had not been building the, the authentic relationship with the people who were the experts about the Hill, even though that I was a subject matter expert about this particular topic. Yeah. The other story that I'll, I'll tell real quickly is I, I got thrown out of the White House Science Fair. The White House Science Fair is uh, in the Obama administration is an annual event where young uh, kids and, and, and teenagers uh, present a bunch of you know Lego robots and and science experiments yeah. to the president, and so it's a very very fun and cool event every year. And uh, I had managed to slip into the green room, uh, which as as you may know has green wallpaper and is kind of this this very fancy room. There was just one uh, scientist there. This was actually an adult scientist, uh, one other staffer, and I was excited to kind of watch the president spend a few minutes with the scientist. You know, it's very rare to kind of be in a room with, with just the president. Uh, there may be, you know, a, a meeting where, where you're in with five or 10 or 15 people, but it's just one of these kind of intimate moments. And a senior staffer came in and basically, you know, demanded what I was doing there. Uh, you know, I stuttered, tried to explain that I, you know, I helped set up or something, which wasn't quite the case. And I got thrown out of, uh, of, of the science fair uh, because I was committing the cardinal sin of being a tourist. And so don't be a tourist. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, I don't know if there's any worse worse uh, party to get thrown out of, uh, so to speak. But uh, I, I did. I, and did, did the president actually come in the room when you got chucked out, or was it the staffer got in there before you and chucked you out? Yeah. So so this is the social secretary whose her, her job was basically to do exactly that. So I don't want to <laughs> uh, uh, say anything other than like breathe, to bend ease, to yeah, relax, because yeah. people sometimes will faint or get very, very excited about meeting the president. Uh, but her job is also to make sure that there aren't unnecessary staff who are just kind of trying to hang in intimate moments. Yeah. And, um, so she kicked me out and then uh, uh, before the president can. That's funny. Yeah, I, I never really thought about that, but I think it's a, it's a 
you know, makes sense. You know, you've got to prep people because I could imagine people really losing their mind uh, before uh, before meeting the president or just ner- nerves hitting them. Probably not. Uh, probably at least a couple people a year hit the floor. <laughs> probably as the president comes in. So I see you nodding in, in agreement, Marina. I- I'd love to hear if you if you got a no ship story you can share with us. Yeah, mine's a, uh, a little more circuitous, but it was uh, when the then the application process opened for the Presidential Innovation Fellows, which is how I came into government and I was part of the first cohort. I literally cried in my apartment because I thought I was so unqualified and I had made so many poor life choices. I had started my own um, IT company when I was 12, which sounds fancy, um, but that meant that by the time college came around, I was I, I tried to go to college and also you know work full-time and it didn't work, so I dropped out. Uh, and then I was uh, an entrepreneur, so I was only self-employed. I never had a boss or an office job. It was kind of a struggle to even put down a reference. And so here was this amazing opportunity to like come into government and and work on something cool. And I was like, I will never be qualified for this. But they said, if you send in your resume, they'd add you to their email list. So I still sent in my resume, assuming I would never hear back and really upset about the poor life choices that I had made. And then I ended up getting picked. So that worked out okay. But I just, I don't want anybody to think that I had some uh, perfectly planned out path, which I had thought would be my life, right? Like you finish high school and you, you know, go off to Harvard and then you keep getting graduate degrees and then that's how you be successful. And it turns out there are a few different paths. Uh, I love that. Uh, you know, it, uh, you don't hear about people that uh, typically kind of classic entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial minds going into uh, big government like that. If you were speaking to another, uh, another young entrepreneurially minded person, is there some specific advice you'd give them or is you're like, or would it just be read my book <laughs> that, that should cover it? <laughs> no, I think it would not be, it would not be read the book so much as I think there's so many ways for an entrepreneur to get involved in and make a difference in government. Uh, maybe the book has a lot of stories of, of hope and, and ideas. Um, and I'd probably have some specific advice depending on their interests of where they might go to deploy that entrepreneurial t- uh, talent because not every part of government is the right fit and not every role would be the right fit, but there are a lot more spots than you might think at first that that could really bring a tremendous amount of benefit. And, uh, it's a good way to sleep at night knowing that you had a material hand in helping 2 million veterans get healthcare or helping a, you know, a bunch of foster kids not sleep on the floor of a lobby and live in homes and families, or ideally not even end up in foster care in the first place. Those are some pretty good feelings at the end of the day that, uh, I encourage everyone to, to try out as part of their own career path. I feel good about that too. So again, hats off to to uh, you and and uh, Nick on some of the really cool things you've both done in your career. And out of interest, do you think uh, do you think the government needs more entrepreneurs? Yes, at every level. Um, to include, I think you know there have been some great programs that Nick had a hand in building the Presidential Innovation Fellows, the Digital Core. There's the United States Digital Service, but at the local and state level, I think there's a lot of opportunity where you can have an even more outsized impact, right? Because it's it's smaller and simply the number of decision points or people that you have to talk to is less to, to bring about big change. So uh, as a last and kind of uh, final subject I'd love to get into today, uh, and, and uh, for, you know, for those of you who've been listening to Ship for a while, you know, I'm about to embark on my own journey of, of writing a book. So I'm very, very intrigued. Uh, so for someone writing a book who's ever even thought about writing a book, so what was the hardest part of the process? Let's start with you, uh, Marina. Oh boy. For me, the hardest part of the process has been selling the book because uh, I'm sort of shy. <laughs> and so I have to keep going out and doing and talking and, and working that out. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think what I'd encourage in terms of advice 
uh, when we first started writing the book, it was going to be a 12 chapter kind of traditional format. And that was a real struggle because we had so many stories and tactics and we were sort of artificially jamming them into different categories. And we were so lucky to have these amazing editors and Dan and Allison who said, hey, what if you write a 56 chapter book instead where every chapter is short? And that really, I think, lent itself uh, much better to our message. And so I just encourage, you know, maybe think a little bit outside the box of what the right format is. Every book does not have to be 12 chapters demonstrably, right? There's plenty of books mm-hmm. that, are, that are formatted like ours. And so I would encourage thinking about that. Some flex- flexibility in it. And did you, um, it sounds like you don't struggle to kind of find the time to put pen to paper then? I found writing uh, smaller chapters much easier than writing longer chapters. Yeah. Um, and also everyone has their own uh, technique. I mean, Nick is someone that likes working every day a little bit on the book. And I'm someone that likes to uh, have a real big mug of coffee and like plow yeah. through a 12 yeah, you, you go on benders. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, you're like yeah. tonight it's going down <laughs> like 12 hours. So knowing how you work, I think is important um, because I, I don't work well in the daily chunks, but again, someone else would really not work well in a 12 hour chunk. So. I uh, I think it's a product of my my OCD, but I'm I'm with you on that. Like I find that like in an hour is uh, I kind of you know I, I use that to knock out really short focus things. But once I you know what they call getting into the zone, like sometimes I struggle to stop working when I'm like that. But I I but I can knock out insane amounts of work because I'm just like I just it's just when it's flowing it's flowing. But I'm I'm worried about you know working on the book because I do feel like sometimes when I'm not and this is yeah. This is why I'm not a professional book writer, but it's like, you know, say you, know, you can't like with creative people, it's like you can't just be when you're feeling it. You got to you got to make it happen. So, Nick, but, any advice uh, from you for, for anyone who's ever thought about writing a book or what it might mean to go out there and, and do that? I don't think I had recognized how much writing a book was selling a book. And, you know, the, the other the other thing is you got to make progress, right? You got to kind of get at it. And so um, it was one of those things where I just had that sheer terror of like, now we've signed a contract, now we have nine months. And and the more you get actually deeper, the more you can spend time revising, et cetera. So don't, don't, don't wait till the end, Freddie. Okay. Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm at the, I'm, I've got a lot of pent up energy of uh, a subject. I'm, I'm dying, to, dying to get out. I think that's what inspired us, to, uh, inspired myself and my co-authors uh, to want to, to want to do that. So I want to thank uh, both of you again for for joining me today. I, I really I really enjoyed it. I think your book is fantastic. I think uh, so. For those people out there who haven't had a chance to read it yet, they can get it at hackyourbureaucracy.com. I bought myself mine on Amazon and got it straight to my Kindle. But I think obviously people can get it in whatever uh, format they want. But if if people want to learn more about you and they and they want to follow you or find you, what's what's the what's the best way for them to do that? Um, all our bios and social media profiles, et cetera, are on the website at hackyourbureaucracy.com. So would welcome connecting. Awesome. That make, that keeps it ni- nice nice and easy. And then, again, for those of you listening to OSHIP right now, I want to just thank you for tuning in. Uh, those of you who come here every week, whether you're listening live or watching live on any of our social platforms, like YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or you are uh, tuning in via our, any of our audio podcasts on any of the platforms we stream on. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really, really appreciate your support. And the best thing you can do to continue to support the show is tell a friend, leave a comment, engage in chat, uh, leave, you know, leave something in the, on the post show. And we'll, we'll respond to you there. And if you've gotten an idea for a great guest, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and so finally, just want to thank, uh, thank you both one more time. 
Uh, and uh, I wish you great success in your book. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll have you back on when the sequel comes out. <laughs> so thanks again for your time. And thanks everyone for tuning into O'Ship. The O'Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie, we'll see you next time when we will once again be raising the sales for the O'Ship Show.